Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Move Prestige film. This time we're talking about The Master, which, if all goes right, we'll be releasing this around at or around September the 14th, which is its 10th anniversary of wide release. This movie is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, written by PTA as well. It stars Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams. Uh, of course, I guess I should be talking about uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, he's Commodus. He's Swing Away Merrill mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, what the, the happening, whatever. Cash. Signs. Yeah, sure. All those things. Uh, Felix Seymour Hoffman. I mean, come on. He's the uh, it's now moon. It's a space station tornado guy from Twister. He's uh, the the dilettante in uh, 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 finding Mr. Ridley. Mr. Ridley. Why can't I? What the hell has happened to my brain? Jesus. Mr. Jesus. Holland's open. That's not the one. That's not the one. He, uh, yeah. He, he's Boogie Nights. Sure. Uh, the, the talented Mr. Ripley. Capote. He's been in a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of cool shit. Uh, gone too gone too soon. Amy Adams. Uh, my personal, I think, favorite star in Hollywood right now. Been in the Arrival, mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. Hustle, tons of tons of great shit. Uh, Laura Dern, Jurassic Park's own. Mm-hmm. Rami Malek, Mr. Robot. Hello. Jesse Plemons, Meth Damon. Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? All the bald blue favorites in this here movie that left a lot of people confused and conflicted. I This is right before. This came out right before we started doing bald movies. I know you and I both saw it and we really, really liked it. But boy, critical opinion is all over the place. So Roger Ebert uh, yeah. damned this film with what I'd call faint praise at two and a half stars, calling it beautiful, well-acted, ultimately meaningless. And this, I, one, one of uh, one of his last reviews, like uh, in April oh, wow. of the next year, he's going to die. Uh, so it's like, man, that's that was a really coming up on the 10 year anniversary of uh, Mr. Ebert's death. Jim, what do you mm-hmm. think of this movie? Uh, both first, uh, have you seen it since? And what do you think uh, when we we watched it here for a prestige podcast? So this is only the second time I've seen this movie um, the first time. You know, I saw it in theaters with you, and I remember walking out of this movie going, wow, that really blew me away, and the performances are just incredible. And I think that part of the movie holds true. I think it's undeniably amazing performances from pretty much everybody across the board, but Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman in particular uh, just blow me away. Scorching. And I remember the first time I saw this movie coming away from it thinking, boy, they really put uh, Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard in particular on blast. And I I was surprised, actually, when I went and rewatched this movie that they never once mention L. Ron Hubbard by name. They never once mentioned Scientology by name because coming out of this the first time, I thought this was literally about Scientology. I didn't think there was any uh, obfuscation with the names have been changed and, and you know, no, no, whatever disclaimer they put at the beginning of movies like mm-hmm. that, right? Or at the end. And no, it turns out this is like, obviously, obviously it is a riff on Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. There's no denying that. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, the movie studios and Ben PTA would deny it up and down because they'll get their asses sued if they don't. But it apparently the movie is not about L. Ron Hubbard uh, exactly. 
which blew my mind. Um, and the second time around, I feel very much more up in the air about this because I'm I, I'm looking at it, you know, expecting these great performances. And so when they come, they still blow me away, but they don't they don't shade my opinion of the entire movie as much. And I'm looking for, and maybe I'm just a more sophisticated movie viewer at this point. It's 10 years on. We've been covering movies since then. Um, and I'm looking for the meaning in this movie and I'm finding meaning in places, right? I'm, I'm finding meaning in, in final speeches from characters. I'm finding meaning in the visual storytelling, but I'm not really able to grab onto any one thing and say, this is what the movie's about. And that is a hard thing to come away from a movie with and still feel like it's an amazing movie. Hmm. Because most of the time when I come away with questions, it's questions about how I feel about the message of the movie, not what the hell was the message of this movie. Yeah. I really liked this movie when I, uh, when I first saw it, I immediately, you know, like, uh, 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 cults kind of have kin- kinship with other cults. You know, we've famously kind of grew up in a, a fundamentalist religions cult mm-hmm. uh, that has like, it's, it's different kooky than Scientologists, but it has a lot of the same kookiness, you know? Um, and I immediately got like, I really liked the way that they showed that this guy, you know, was vulnerable to the cult. Uh, the way it works on the people with this kind of system of love bombing and catastrophizing so you just really have these intense relationships mm-hmm. with people and then ultimately i thought it was really satisfying is this guy even though he's a broken person is able to through some effort of will resist committing and and you know i don't know if he ends yeah. up saving his life but certainly uh he, he dodged a bullet by the end of this movie mm-hmm and, and like you said, I just think the the performances, like the just so the the, the intensity of some of the stuff that goes on between, in particular, uh, Seymour uh, Hoffman and uh, Joaquin Phoenix here is just I've it's just so wild and bizarre, and their relationship, their their attraction, mm-hmm. uh, the things that bind them together feels very similar, simultaneously rock solid, but also un- inexplicable. You know, like, why the fascination yeah. of this guy? Why does he entrust him with these abilities? Why is this happening? Uh, the interior of, like, the cult, you know, like, the way that, like, there's there's new light and people's <laughs> reaction to that and the founders. Like, I, I think this is yeah. all just, just really fascinating stuff. And um, I still feel that way. Like, what is the point of the movie? Um, I don't know. I, I think it's a, it's, it's just really intense study of like uh, cults of personality yeah, and how they operate. Um, it felt, everything felt very, very realistic. Um, and it's like, that's, that's the thing. It's like, maybe it's not Scientology, but it's like 95% of Scientology. And this uh-huh. guy is not L Ron Hubbard. But he's 95% of L Ron Hubbard. There's a couple scenes where Joaquin Phoenix Phoenix is taking pictures of Philip Seymour Hoffman in exactly the same outfits that like you'll recognize if you've ever cracked Dianetics or battlefield earth or mission mm-hmm. earth or any of his crazy shit. Like he's all, he's, he's on the back of that wearing like this weird admirals admirals uniform with a feathered quill with his hand on his chin, looking like a douchebag intellectual actual style as himself as a doctor and a nuclear physicist and all this other fabulous shit. Um, but yeah. they show like the, 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 how like the charisma and as I just curious blend of, of, of charisma and fragility and 
Like, I also thought it's fascinating to be like, how much of this shit did he really buy? Did he start knowing that this was a fraud and just was so in love with his own voice and had so many people under his spell that he starts believing in himself? And then when he has moments of doubt or moments of like fraud complex that he later overcomes or those like interpreted as weaknesses of faith that were later. uh, I I don't know. And I think that's like the really another really interesting lens to like, not just, I think a lot of uh-huh. people look at it as like, you know, what's happening to Joaquin Phoenix, but what's happening with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character of a Lancaster Dodd. Yeah. And, and even the two of them together. Right. But the, the, the thing that makes it so confounding to me is that the moments of insight come so infrequently in this movie. I think. Do there, they there really? Are, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, hmm. it, I, I, they spend a lot of time painting a picture of these two guys and not a lot of time like giving you insight into what that picture is saying about them uh and and the movie comes off as like you know not one not one-sided either it doesn't have a strong opinion i feel on this person uh either of these people like i don't know by the end of the movie that joaquin phoenix has changed i don't know by the end of the movie that i understand whether Lancaster Dodd is a flim flam artist or simply a man who believes a thing strongly and is very compelling when he speaks about it. It's I I can't quite pin either of these characters down and that makes it both interesting, but also very confounding. I guess. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think this film is gorgeous. It was shot 65 millimeter. It was widely, um, you know, Mm distributed in 70 millimeter which is like if you ever get a chance to see a 70 millimeter on an IMAX or something I encourage you to do so it looked great in the 4k transfer that I watched uh there's just shots that are so beautiful uh the aquamarine of a large ship at seas uh you, you know uh, the propellers oh, cutting through the deep blue of the sea the mm-hmm. uh the, the muted tones of the salt flats and watching a figure disappear into the heat heat uh, disturbance of it um just the just like some of the the the, the close-ups of just like the intensity yeah. of philip seymour hoffman and and uh um joaquin phoenix and their struggle sessions Mm-hmm. Uh, and the soundtrack, my God, Johnny Greenwood, yeah. who you yeah. might recognize as a member of Radiohead and turns out has done a lot of soundtracks. There will be blood, the master inherent vice, phantom thread among others. This is just a real masterpiece. Like there is discordant music that plays mm-hmm. when things are creepy. There's dreamy, uh, music when you can't tell if things are like real or, or a fantasy. There's soaring aspirational music when the Scientologist Scientology is starting to work or maybe working, not working yeah. or you're, you're hoping it's <laughs> uh-huh. working. Like there's a lot of like really interesting sonic texture because there's not like stuff you can hum or tap your toe. It's all no atmospheric and it's exactly what this this movie needs and it suits the visuals and and the acting style uh, perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a risk here, you know, with a movie about Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and seeing all of these processing methods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you you could tip over into satire or or into into blatant criticism of the thing you're covering, and I don't think the movie ever does, which is surprising to me. 
Uh, yeah, this kind of what I was looking for. And, it's, and coming out of this, you know, the first time thinking, oh, they really put Scientology on blast. I kind of expected to see more of that the second time around, but it's not there, really. I kind of like that. The fact that like the movie uh-huh. does not condemn the cause. Right. It. I think the movie does. Actually, I think the movie does. Um, but the sure, movie itself sure. maintains a completely neutral POV. It's just watching rituals. It's watching mm-hmm. interactions between people. It's not saying whether things are good and bad. It's not going to put the thumb on the scale about whether this is completely yeah. nonsense or meaningless. It has a couple of exchanges where the fictional version of L. Ron Hubbard is able to defend his movement from pretty pointed criticism. Um, mm, and like I said, I, th- I, I, <laughs> sure. well, that's what I'm saying, but I, I feel like when, if you're keeping score of the, the balls going across yeah. the net, he loses, he commits a lot more fouls and lots of a lot more points come past him than his opposition. And I think that's where it's like the movie's not condemning, but like, you know, you have to go pretty far outside what I think is a reasonable position to think that this is all net good, you know? Absolutely. Um, Apparently it really pissed off Tom Cruise when uh, his, his good friend, (laughs) uh, Paul Thomas Anderson screened this for him. Uh, quote unquote, he hit the roof at the movie's uh, naked implication that Elrond might have been making shit up as he went along. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. Um, can, can we talk? I, I'm dying to talk about this in more detail. And some do we want to get into the spoiler section? I, I would love to, yeah, give a rundown of what the plot of this movie basically as it stands. Okay. And then we can get into specifics. Uh, this movie is about Joaquin Phoenix who plays Freddie Quell, who is a World War II naval veteran who has, uh, he might have brought some kind of kooky behavior into the Navy, but certainly the experiences that he's had killing people and, and surviving things have given him shell shock, what we call PTSD. He has a, a hard time adjusting to civilian life. We see him trying various jobs. He's got a passion and a talent for some uh, artistic photography, uh, that doesn't, you know, le- leads him to getting some scuffles. He tries work as a migrant uh, farm worker. He is an alcoholic of like one of the, I guess, the uh, of the the basis sorts. The kind of guy that oh, will yeah. drain a torpedo for its its uh, its fuel and and uh, squeeze a few oranges in it. And it's it's monkey pump. It's exactly, monkey pump right out of the lighthouse. Exactly. I have that in my and, notes too. <laughs> and. Uh, as a as a result of misadventures on Monkey Pump, he tries to flee by stowing away aboard a small cruise liner that turns out to have been commandeered by one Lancaster Dodd, who is L. Ron Hubbard by any name, is played brilliantly by Seymour Hoffman. For some reason, Lancaster Dodd sees some kind of animal kinship in uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Freddy. And that is is like going to be his life's work to cure him to to awaken the sleeping animal into the thoughtful man that he knows everyone can behave. And the movie is a uh, a, a push pull loyalty codependence uh, religious cult obsession between these two figures, mm-hmm. and it goes surprising places. And, uh, and it, it is in a surprising place, I think. Yeah, yeah. It ends with what uh, I think is supposed to be a happy ending. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's we very open-ended. It. It's very open-ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, if you haven't seen it, and I, I, I know a lot of people probably haven't, uh, it is 
it's, it gets, I think it's got 85% of Rotten Tomatoes, but man, if you really dive into the individual reviews, there is some, some stark disagreement. There's a lot of confusion. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. admits this thing. This is Paul Thomas Anderson's self-professed favorite movie. Wow. That he thinks he f- put the most into that has the best performances. He says he doesn't think it entirely works, but he doesn't care because what he got on picture screen is kind of exactly what he wanted to do. And he wanted to tell the story. So, uh, what, uh, you, you had something you were burning to get to, uh, right now we're going to be talking in in-depth spoilers. Um, you know, so if you, you think you want to see this movie, I don't think it's streaming for free anywhere, but again, I can, I can definitely recommend Apple. Apple plus, uh, has a, an amazing 4k transfer of this what what are you burning to yeah. talk about when it comes to the master uh maybe we can keep on with you know philip seymour hoffman's portrayal of not l ron hubbard um i feel like the master is an ironic title in mm. this movie because you know if you wanted to say that the master here that the title is describing is lancaster dodd i think he is not the master of himself and i think that's evident throughout the movie there are there are several times where he has angry outbursts when someone challenges him um he is in ways that i think we we need to dive into here in a second unfaithful to his wife um which wife the one he's with now are the ones that are his biggest detractors <laughs> and uh, leading yeah, a movement fair. to take him down. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then he even, I, I think, admits as much at the end of the movie when he's talking to Joaquin Phoenix out in London. And he says, if you find a way to live without a master, let me know because you'll be the first man to have ever done. The first person to have ever done so. Yeah. Um, so. So he is a slave to his own masters. He is not the master of himself. And I, I think that's the whole kind of point of this movie, right? Um, if, if there is a point to it, I feel like that's it that like everyone has their struggles with something and you know, whether Scientology is the way to deal with that or not, this, this cause um, I think is up in the air, depending on what you think about it and who you are, but everyone struggles with finding a way to deal with that stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's like that's the kind of like megalomaniacal, but like fragility because his whole shtick was I've got a way to be in control mm-hmm. at all times and unlock this hidden potential that remains like the only the, to be a fully awake human in the sea of slumbering beasts. But like he can't quite live up to it. Yeah. Um, he's faking yeah. it until he makes it, but he's faking being a nuclear physicist and a medical doctor. And I'm sorry, like I've seen uh, catch me if you can. That that's. Uh, <laughs> That's something that's hard to kind of quote unquote get away with. Mm-hmm. Um, so like these, and I think what the the core fascination between him and Freddy is that he sees Freddy as this indomitable beast and like yeah. isn't capable of being cowed. Does not recognize any master. Mm-hmm. Now it to his it's I think it's to his detriment. But uh, like, I, well, I think that he does thing, have a master. It's it's his vices, right? It's his yeah. It's the monkey pump. It's it's his alcoholism it's is one of his pump. masters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The fact that he is sex obsessed and sex in obsessed, denied, uh-huh. deep de- deep deep denial about it as well. Um, and let me throw this out there because I did not tune into the wavelength of this movie, this wavelength at all until this second watch, and it was after the second watch. I had to go back and watch a couple of scenes again to tune into the homoerotic elements of this movie. Were you picking up on any of that? I definitely thought the movie was, but I, I'm not a big fan of the homoerotic uh, 
explanation for these men's behavior because I just don't find it for like I don't find it extremely compelling textually. I like didn't I think either, I think there I was went... a mutual fascination and there is a, a mm-hmm. physical intimacy, but like more like brothers than lovers. I certainly agreed with you immediately after my second watch. I did not pick up any of that. And then I saw a review of somebody like it's a widely like it's surprising how many people and like respected film critics say the obvious homoerotic elements. And I'm like, are they obvious? Cause I didn't see any. And I went back mm. and I watched a couple scenes. So the scene that changed my mind on this, the two scenes, the pairing of them is the scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman is singing and dancing and Joaquin Phoenix is watching him and the room, all the women in the room become naked at some point. This and is the roaming, like the roaming. Yeah. I yeah, won't yeah, go yeah. roaming with you no more that, that scene. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then immediately after that, and if you watch that scene really closely, if you're not distracted by the naked ladies, uh-huh. Amy Adams. So Joaquin Phoenix is looking at Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And there's something going on in his head. And then Amy Adams is looking at him, looking mm-hmm. at Philip Seymour Hoffman. And immediately after that, there's a scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman gets a hand job from her. And she's saying, you can't do this. You can't get away with this. I don't care what you do so long as I don't know about it. And I think it's pretty obvious at that point in the movie, at least, that there is a homoerotic flavor, at least coming from. Well, I, I don't know why she, if she didn't think it was mutual, she would do anything here. But I, I feel like, yeah, that explains a little bit more. But I, I'm also with you. I don't think it's entirely just. Oh, see, love. I think that's a fundamental misreading of that scene. I think the misreading think of so? this, the, this, the plain reading of that scene, and if people want to read a homosexual on homosexual, if people want to read a gay, a gay subtext mm-hmm. uh, to that scene, that's fine. I'm not offended by it, certainly. But what I think there, what's happening in that scene is number one, Freddie is sex obsessed. Like mm-hmm. uh, halfway through the scene, he just starts seeing everyone with their clothes taken off because he's fascinated by that. Secondly, uh, Do- uh, Lancaster Dodd is considering carnal relation with one maybe two of the ladies in that room and he is so drunk on the monkey pump that he is getting kind of sloppy in it and she's looking at freddie and him and she's seen the connection between freddie's like wild animal desires and his monkey pump and the bizarre and and the the dangerous behavior of philip seymour hoffman and she gives him a hand job number one to cool his his loins down and two remember it's like because she also brings up like you know the 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 biggest your biggest attractors are all the ex-women in your life and I'm mm. based and I'm like one of your co uh, co-authors and all this stuff. And you can't. So like, I, she's I don't not hostile toward any of the women in this movie. She's very hostile toward Freddie. And I, and because I, I don't think that is like leaning yeah. into the homoerotic nature of their relationship. I think she is wrongly blaming Freddie for what is, what seems to be a pattern in, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's life of, of acquiring these, these women followers and discarding them. But like, yeah, I mean, okay. like I said, I'm so, not I, so I'm not saying you can't read it, but like I think because for, for one thing, if it's a homoerotic thing, it's a one sided because Freddie is crazy about women like he has. There is no interest in men anywhere like they could have definitely put that in sure. with in the naval setting. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, right, they could have right. definitely anchors away that for sure. And I just don't I don't think <laughs> uh-huh. they did. Like he does seems like, you know, we get a lot of internal yeah scenes from Freddie's perspective where he's just a, a girl crazy. And it doesn't seem like 
in an art of like, you know, like uh, Brokeback Mountain where Jake uh, mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal and uh, uh, Heath Ledger were affecting that, you know, as like a way to like shield their underlying uh, attraction towards yeah, each other. I, I didn't yeah. get that on this. Yeah. No, it's genuine, but you know, it doesn't have to be mutual. You know, he could be yeah. obsessed with women, but also fall in love with this man. I don't think. But I, I also so like I, this is like I I feel like that's a late. I just feel like that's lazy. It's the same way. It's like interpreting like Sam and Frodo as a gay couple. And if you want to do that, sure. like in a somewhat ironic way, just as like, hey, it's gay representation. Fine. But like, I honestly think it does real harm to actual male relationships. Like that, like if men are close and oh, are physically yeah, no. close and they'll hug and like even like that, that's oh, that's fucking gay. Like, holy shit. Sometimes I feel like we wrap around from homophobia so hard that we wind back up. You know, the opposite uh-huh. of crazy is still crazy. But yeah, again, I'm not going after that, like them rolling around in the grass is homoerotic. I'm like, no, it's just <sighs> roughhousing. It's, it's that's like play. I said, that's super brother type affection. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. uh, uh, it's, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not mad. I just think it's a little wrong, a little wrongheaded. Uh, um, I don't know because then, then the song at the end, uh, I think is super interesting and it, it, you know, you could interpret that multiple ways also. Um, you know, the slow boat to China song is, I wish I had you all to myself. Certainly a song about romance or well, you mm-hmm. know, sexual, uh, intimacy. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's singing it directly to Freddie in this moment of of finality in their relationship as as Freddie's about to leave London. Um so you could read that as homoerotic or you could read it as the challenge of it, right? It mm-hmm. is what he's singing about here. I wish that for my life's work I would have the opportunity to spend more time with you and truly fix you. Um there's that possibility too. And they're both it's, they're both potentially there. Yeah, I don't know enough about Elrond's history to know if he was like maybe closeted gay or I could definitely buy him be a bisexual. I have no um, idea. But I, I felt like he was pretty notorious horn dog, and they definitely portray him in this movie as a philanderer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, he could be. I I, I just felt like from I uh, yeah I I saw that that not criticism but analysis, and I I didn't. But of course, you went through and rewatched the scenes and, and recontextualized it, so. I don't think there's a wrong may, answer maybe here. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong too. Maybe you know it's it's not in there. But yeah, once once someone points it out, you could see around the edges. There are definitely things. But that's the story of this movie in a nutshell is around the edges because I don't feel like this movie ever directly gets to a point other than just a character study. I think it it drops you know information every once in a while. It drops important clues, but I'm not actually sure what those clues add up to. Like I haven't cracked the riddle of this movie and it sounds like maybe Paul Thomas Anderson didn't crack the riddle of this movie either based on what I read. What do you think about the actual practices deployed here, de- depicted here by the cause, which again, I think some of you them know, this would this, be helpful uh, and beneficial. Well, this informal processing seems like it's very close to what uh, Scientologists actually do in terms of auditing each other. Um, yeah. These are like these psychological games, um, which are, Every one of these things are so fucking intense, man. Uh-huh. Um, even the ones like that, when they start, it's kind of like a joke and they just ramp up. So it's real to, to, to the point where like, uh, you know, there's this one scene that I think is incredible where Joaquin Phoenix is going from a window to a wall. 
until the sweat drops off his balls. He's going from the window to the wall and he's like, you know, trying to describe what it is. And first of all, he's trying to like be game. And then it's like, the, but he keeps on again, again, again. Uh, he's left in a room by himself and he's doing it to himself. And like, uh, you know, Lancaster Dodd's sitting watching him through a window, just raps like, I can't believe this shit. Like, like he can't believe this shit is, is, is happening. Um, to where he's like, now he's like, uh, that, uh, he's torturing himself into like the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Picard is forced to say there's three lights when there's actually four. Like yeah. he talks about all the amazing vistas he can see out the window and how much he can feel the, the you know, like he's inverted the two places at one point and he, he's literally, uh, there's another great scene where he's looking in Amy Adams' eyes and she says, what a color are my eyes? Now imagine they're blue. Now imagine they're black. And it just shows that him changing his reality to match. They're brainwashing him in a real sense. Yes. Yes. Um, what do you? What? What? So I, what, those are the problematic elements. Mm. Of it. There, there are practices in this that I think would be effective and very helpful for somebody. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are practices which, you know, veer off radically into cult territory. And that that blue yeah. eyes to black thing is a hundred percent that. Um, it's it's teaching you to ignore the truth of reality yep. and believe what you're told to believe. That is yep. the purpose of that exercise. To trust uh, an outside agency above your own faculties. Yes. Um, as is, you know, the walk to the window and the wall stuff. Now, I think earlier on the informal processing stuff where you're getting to the root causes of people's trauma, I think that has a lot of value. I, I think yeah. that's a more akin to traditional therapy as we think of it. Um it's, it's way more aggressive that that and invasive, but yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, and when you combine that with the fact that they are literally recording it and mm. what we know of Scientology is they use that to keep you in the cult, right? You've divulged a lot right. of things. It'd be a real shame if someone were to get their hands on this tape. Only people that elevate, like uh, that have audited their thetans will ever be able to understand that you did this and that. And yeah, right. What will, what will the public think? Yeah, it becomes blackmail material. That's where it becomes disgusting. Um, but I think there are a lot of effective techniques early on in this movie. Yeah, it's so also like I'm I think, torn on it. I, I I think Elrond is an interesting figure because we just don't have that many religions founded that like have a shot at like you know uh, within living memory. Like it's I, I don't Jedi know how Scientology going to be around and yeah, years. and like the Moonies and like the Heaven's Gate cult. Like uh, we we've definitely seen Harry Krishnas. We've seen things come and go, and there's there's mm-hmm. you know wax and wane. But like Scientology looks like it might make escape velocity. Like it might turn into. Uh, and I, I analogous is like when I grew up in the Jehovah's Witnesses, we were at the tail end of the cult of personality. Like the last of the great presidents of the Watchtower Society, Raymond Friends, was an elderly man and he was going to die. And there would only be one more president before they moved away from that. And they just essentially had, a you know, these these seven elder men that are going to all share leadership and first among equals, which kind of like. And then they de- kind of de-emphasize the, the, those men in, in the history. But like you go back and you think about like in the original days, like with Charles Taze Russell or especially with like Judge Rutherford, mm-hmm. some of those stories where it's like you're being a room for people joking around and then they get offended by something, just issue a de- edict. And it's clearly they're just personal opinion or knee jerk reaction yeah. to something. But we have to pretend like God just whispered something to our ear. Like there is a lot of that 
stuff or like there's classic stories of judge rutherford like a flop sweating right before he's supposed to give an international address and he's promised that there's going to be some kind of banger new insight and teaching he's like christ oh my Christ! oh my god oh my god oh my god what am i going to say what am i going to say oh my god it's going to be over they're going to know and like you obviously on the inside you never hear about those stories mm-hmm. but it's so interesting to see behind I, the, the other other cults like what that looks like because I think that's it's also been said that like the best way to break a loved one out of a cult is get him to talking about an unrelated cult right you right. know and like com- if you want to draw some comparisons not direct but let them draw yeah just just talk about because they because like a Jehovah's Witness will readily see the crazy shit in Scientology and and mm-hmm. and, and see it as science and see it as in nuts and then if you can without making direct comparison, just kind of like, you know, get them talking about like, ah, it's crazy. And they, they'll, they'll feel the cognitive dissonance themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if you're trying to break someone out of the uh, Scientology, you could talk about witnesses or some other, you know, and I think that's, it's, it's just so interesting to me for someone that's from that background to see this like dramatized and see that, like, I would love, I would love a founding Jehovah's witness movie. Oh my God. Yes. I would love yeah. Uh, a, a three and a half hour exploration of like the dirty tricks that went, uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's like, because we have our own Joseph Smith died and Brigham Young uh, slew all, you know, uh, pretenders to the throne and took I things over. And to even just see like crisis of conscience made into a movie. Cause oh, frankly, yeah, that's a the shakedown tale. in the late seventies, early eight, yes. early eighties, where there's a high profile, the brother of that Raymond friends. Oh, was uh, it? Was it his brother and nephew? But he was on the governing body. Governor, and he turned yeah. defector um, uh, and became like this, just, just through the whole, the on, whole, ca- you know, some bad shit that he saw happening in like Mexico, I think it was, or South America. I can't remember. Yeah. It was the idea that um, the brothers made a decision that like, uh, well, like I guess five years ago there there's like some bloodshed in Rwanda where the brothers said, Hey, uh, anyone that didn't have a, the political card that identified them with the ruling party were summarily executed in places. And there's just terrible mm-hmm. tales of the brothers and sisters in this country being tortured in like Rwanda, uh, Malawi. And then five years later in Mexico, there was an exact similar situation where the brothers mm-hmm. needed to procure up um, a, uh, a political party card to gain employment and stuff. And it's not even, it wasn't as bad. Like some, the brothers are African be butchered and having their yeah. fucking dicks hooked up to car batteries and shit. It was just kind of like a bummer. Like it's harder to find work in Mexico. And like five years later, it's like, Oh yeah, you can buy that card. Mm-hmm. And like that, like, He's like this guy suffered in the meantime. Yeah, arbitrary decision. What's an odd and half of these old men are falling asleep during the meetings where they're they're discussing whether like you should do this or that. And it's like he's like this is just fucking arbitrary and people are dying. So like get get Jared Harris. uh, Get fuck who wrote Chernobyl? What's his name? (laughs) Oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, Craig Maslin. Get get Craig Maslin and Jared Harris on that project. I will one hundred percent be there day one. Yeah, yeah. You can call it the Bible students if you want to dodge the Jehovah's Witness thing. <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah, I think this that's... movie is is pretty good uh, about being that without like being overtly that. I don't know. Yeah, and it's, it's like one of those things that to the extent to all cults because like they have the same like they love mm-hmm. Bami at the beginning, and that's like so that's what's if you think that you're too smart to fall for a cult, you're not wrong. You're probably mm-hmm. at more risk. Uh, if you think <laughs> that you uh, you know the only defense of cults I think is to have a well developed sense of self and and have tons of people in your life that love and support you unconditionally. Yeah, an already that's existing the, social network. Yep. 
that's the best way to to to, to inoculate yourself from 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 cult shit. But like what uh, where they take this fundamentally damaged person that feels like he's just uniquely evil, probably because of his sex, uh, uh, you know, his, his obsession with sex, uh, all the people he'd killed. And you're going to sit there and and he feels like he's worthless and no one sees him. And you, a great man, are mm-hmm. going to singularly focus and say that you are this and you are that. And. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to ask questions that are might be offensive, but like no one's ever asked these questions where no one's even gave a shit. Uh, and then simultaneously, once you do that, the, the shame and fear of losing that you finally found this connection, this acceptance, and it can be withdrawn in a, a snap of the fingers. And you are so mm-hmm. terrified of that happening. That scene of Laura Dern, where she's like, I'm yeah. sorry, I've read this second book and you were very specific that the verbiage and auditing was supposed to be this and you've gone from it is observed to we can imagine and what, and the, the reality is Lancaster Dodd has no fucking clue. All right. He is, right. he's just making a ship as he goes along and he tries to give like, he, he, he gives a pretty well thought out answer but it, she doesn't accept it because she's a true devout. She wants to, she wants to understand this, you know, and she's essentially getting the William Shatner SNL treatment where he just like, get a fucking life. Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is your problem? This is the new shit. And just shuts her down. Like, that felt really real. And you yeah. see the look on her face like, oh, my God. Like, she's the warring of like is like the cognitive dissonance in a 1984 sense of holding two contradictory ideas in her head of is this bullshit? Am I wrong? Can I can I question Lancaster Dodd? And what is like, it's like, it's, it's just all right there in her face. And I think it's fucking brilliant. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And there's nothing that extreme, you know, in, in the witness organization, right? You're not, you're not forced to walk between a wall and a window for hours at a time until you, there is weird stuff though. Cause I, I'm thinking about like, as like uh, my, you know, um, I don't want to tell stories out of school, but my sister had some problems walking the narrow line. And I guess like when you get the, when they have the judicial committees mm-hmm. where they, the, the older men in the congregation convene a group of three of them to get to the bottom of a, a matter involving wrongdoing and witnesses. If this already mm-hmm. sounds culty as fuck, it is. Yeah, I've been through one but of these. Sure. I guess these old men sometimes get these teenage girls and to a lesser extent boys in those back rooms and just go into graphic detail of like, oh, how many fingers did he put inside you? Did you have an orgasm? Mm-hmm. How many orgasms were did you get? Were you aroused? Were you wet? Did he t- like are what you aroused? The f- are you a wet? wet what old man because yeah what <laughs> oh no i i'm i yeah, i think they're like fucking freddy on the beach man like it's it's right. really uncomfortable and i think that uh yeah like i i, I always like anytime i want to say well the witnesses aren't extreme it's like yeah but like there's other things no, from like indoctrination perspective that, that's what yes. i'm talking about here the love bombing absolutely happens yeah um, the indoctrination beyond that is a lot more subtle i think um, then portrayed, but in still this thousands movie. of witnesses die it's, a year because they won't take blood. I still mean, very effective. Oh, I yeah. don't know how many Scientologists die worldwide. If you want to <laughs> rule out Linda Miscavige, I don't know how many Scientologists die, die worldwide because of their beliefs. I know that thousands in the witnesses still do. So, mm-hmm. like, which is worse? Which is more extreme? How many families have they destroyed? Sure. How many sure. careers, economic futures? You know, if you want to, like, a lot, a lot. There's a, there's a, there's quite a, a toll I think on both organizations. But that's yeah. the stuff I like. I think liked. it's more effective, though. I mean, the you know, the witnesses are a bigger organization than Scientology. Yeah. And I think that's partially due to the fact that their methods are more subtle, just as effective, but more subtle. 
Um, or not, is it? And, and their teachings on the face of it are not as batshit insane. Well, yeah, we did. We, we, we there's some batshit. I mean, like witnesses are old school Aryan heretics, but like, yeah, they We're still profess that, belief in Jesus insane. Christ. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind I of. Mean, yeah. yeah. As long as you talk about Jesus and God, I think you yeah. get a level of like immediate respect and, and like recognition. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that isn't totally outside my sphere of, of knowledge. But, but once the, you start the, talking about Xenu and shit, you, you right. lost everyone. But I don't know, because like, are the Scientologists uniquely extreme or are they just in their Judge Rutherford phase because they had their Charles Taze Russell. He died. This ruthless kind of fucker took over. How many times when he dies, how many times can that happen before the the struggle for power weakens everybody to where there's some kind of and like there's going to be increasing pressure Uh, to the extent that the Scientology continues to be defiant, continues to like confine people against their will and people die under mysterious circumstances. And they go to war with the IRS and shit like that. Like, you can't keep doing that. Mm-hmm. You'll eventually have to be moderated or destroyed. So, like, give, you know, witnesses have been kicking around for 150, 170 years. Uh, sure, you, but at this point, I mean, yeah. they are far less extreme in their methods. Um, yeah. Yeah. Certainly, maybe uh, this is growing pains. Maybe this is, you know, because they're a newer organization, but. Yeah, they'll they'll eventually. Uh, I, they'll, I don't have, I have no have idea how they'll 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 either mellow out or they'll be they'll probably be destroyed or confi- confirmed to you know cons- consigned to irrelevancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a I, I, a question. Did this movie kill F- uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? He had twelve years of sobriety coming into this movie. In 2012, mm-hmm. just after it got made, he fell off the wagon and was dead a year later. Huh. And, and he died soon after, but I didn't realize this. That he and I, I don't, drinking. I've never seen anyone make explicit connection, but when I was watching this material, knowing that he dies mm-hmm. shortly later, I'm thinking the intensity of this, the amount of like fucking drinking that they had to at least pretend to do. And the mm-hmm. mental state that like they they have to pretend to be like psychotic alcoholics like right. that can't be healthy. That couldn't have been healthy for him. No, no, certainly not. That's a hard thing. I would think. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't take all the credit if I were PTA, but certainly it probably contributed. Do you think that the Scientologists put Tom Cruise through this shit? Does he have to go through auditing? Because I, I know that the celebrity branch uh, of Scientology is quite a bit different from the rank and file. Mm-hmm. But do you think do you do you do you think like David Miscavige gets into Tom Cruise's face and asks if he's ever had sex with a family member seventeen times in a row? And because like and and, and, and probably like I, I imagine yeah. And which do you think Tom Cruise found more bizarre, that or Stanley Kubrick's putting him through the ringer on Eyes Wide Shut? <laughs> uh i don't remember that exact story i know that was a traumatic experience for both there, him there and is Nicole a Kidman, there's a hollywood but. theory that stanley kubrick made that movie just to get to the the, the, the chewy caramel center of tom cruise is he a real person is their marriage a sham are yeah. they like it, yeah I don't know. Would you does it more, which is more stressful more being audited or if, or being an eyes wide shut? To make make a movie with uh, it was his ex wife at the time. Was Nicole Kidman? No, they were married. Divorced? 
They were no, still no, no, not yet. Okay. Not yet. I don't, yeah. I don't even know if that movie broke them. Uh, they, they got broke soon after, but soon after. Yeah. I don't know. I imagine he does go through this stuff. I imagine that everyone at some point goes through this and maybe there are less intense versions of it. Maybe there are mm-hmm. versions where it's just exploratory to find the dirt and we're going to make it easy for them um, so that we can find that dirt, especially if they're a millionaire who we want their cash. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Well, it's not the whole point there. There are several points to this, but one of the points of this processing um, or this interrogation technique is to find that dirt, right? So however they can do it, especially on someone who's got a lot to lose, the more you have to lose, I feel like the better that interrogation and blackmail material works out for you. What's your favorite scene? What's your favorite set piece in this movie? My absolute favorite scene is that first internal, or not internal, informal processing scene where Joaquin Mm. Phoenix is not allowed to blink. I think there's something, I, I have a, weird morbid fascination with actors experiencing physical trauma during performances yeah and it's it's why i love the willem dafoe getting buried alive in the lighthouse i think that's an amazing performance and it's why i love that 24-hour live stream i fucking do it where jude law digs his own grave for like (laughs) two hours like, if you want to win a Jim Oscar, just get buried alive on camera. And it's a, yes. it's a shoe in. It's shoe do, do in. something that is physically grueling while delivering one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and I'll, yeah, I'll fall in love with that scene. Cause that is my favorite scene from this movie. I think mine is when, uh, Lancaster Dodd and Freddie get arrested. Lancaster Dodd okay. is, is being and arrested for because he's he's stolen a wit all of Widow's money and now she feels a certain way about it and they're in jail and Joaquin Phoenix is using he's he's handcuffed on his back and he is using his body as a battering ram to destroy this jail yeah. cell as Philip Seymour Hoffman is in the cell over just looking at him mm-hmm. and he's just like destroys this toilet there's this like Murphy's bed on chains that he's just like fucking like i don't know how he didn't get a concussion i'm sure yeah. i mean that was all purpose built out of foam or something but it looks and sounds so real and it goes on forever and the mm-hmm. movie just what and then lancaster dodd starts in with his lancaster dodd bullshit and freddie is so worked up he's not having it and just turns into like a fuck you fuck me fuck you fuck you fuck me yeah that just keeps on Oh God! It's like I can't rip my eyes off of it. It's just so crazy. And this yeah. movie's got six scenes like that. Right, right. No, physically, it's an insane scene for Joaquin Phoenix. And I think, you know, what it's saying about these two people in the moment is equally as impressive because, like you said, Philip Seymour Hoffman's standing there just watching him, and he's as calm, cool, and composed as he's ever been. Right, and this this beast is over in the other cell thrashing around, destroying everything with his base, disgusting behavior. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman cracks. And I think that's like saying so much about his character where this is a facade. This is a struggle for him. It's not something that he's unlocked the secret of a universe and suddenly, you know, his previous lifetimes are affording him some grace and composure. It's just he's white knuckling every second of it, right? Yeah, there's a couple scenes where 
I just got to wonder, why does Lancaster dodge? Because you're talking about him white knuckling. There's a scene where he's passing out Scientology literature, uh, offering free audits and stuff. And you're like you said, white knuckling. Like you're just like the whole time you're watching, like, who's he going to punch? Oh, my God. Who's he going to punch? Because that guy, oh, my God, that guy just wadded up and threw it in front of it. And he's like paused like he's about to eat the man. Like, Uh why did Lancaster (laughs) dodge put him in those positions? Was it to provoke yeah. him? Was it to put faith in him? Was it just to see what the fuck would happen? It's a really good question. Um, it might be all of those. Because you have to remember also, this is a big experiment for Lancaster as well, right? Like, Freddy is his right. subject. He's his guinea pig. And mm-hmm. he is trying to work out his teachings real time on the fly through this man. Um, Because he's only written one book at this point. He's written The Cause, and his second book, The Split Saber, will come out at some point during this movie. But he's still feeling his way through it. So, yeah, I think think it's all of that. I think, like, if he breaks Freddy, he'll have learned something. If Freddy comes through it, you know, a better person, a changed man, he'll have learned something. And I don't think either of those outcomes are particularly bad. And I think maybe that changes by the end of the movie. Um because there is some kind of genuine love there, not necessarily homoerotic, just love between these two men. Um, but yeah, it's an experiment. Throw them in the fire. See what happens. Uh, what part of making Joaquin Phoenix put on an ill-fitting suit clinic is a part of that experiment? <laughs> Which scene is this? Every scene? Every, like, I, no, this thing is, is every once in a while he shows up looking dapper, like, because uh-huh. that's the thing is like this when guy does have this functions with with this guy him, does yeah. have the uh freddie's displayed as having a, like a raw charisma that people find likable sure it's just it, like he's got the opposite of most people's problems where it's like we we you know like we're too embarrassed or shy to talk to people he like just goes in and like people like him but then mm-hmm. you can see where like people like oh god this is a bit too much you know it's, it's like when yeah. when he throws himself on the the sand uh sandcastle maiden and starts mm-hmm. fucking it like the all the guys are like laughing like that's hilarious but then he just keeps going and going and going and like yep. you can see the guys like okay and then everyone's like this is fucking weird and uncomfortable there's tons of scenes like that where like he takes a part where like everyone is liking him and he just ruins it uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because he has to or because that's just his social damage, but um, I don't know the the, the ill fitting suit. I just like got a real kick out of how gangly, weirdly gangly, Joaquin Phoenix has gotten. You see this also in the Joker performance he put on, mm-hmm. but just like and how that is accentuated or completely hidden by uh, good or bad tailoring. Yeah, I think he's got like some shoulder blade stuff some back stuff going on um does he or is that all a performance because man i remember that scene in the joker where he like i don't know thought wings were going to shoot out of his back or something i remember we talked about this yeah at that point um maybe a couple other times but yeah i think i think he has some physical deformity i don't know if it's a result of of a birth defect or a an accident or something i Hmm. i couldn't tell you but there's something definitely unnatural about the the his back, which whatever it, it, he leans into that sometimes in his performances and it really works for a lot of um, this movie. His face is so hard and cruel too. It's like pull yeah. like twisted into a permanent sneer. Mm-hmm. Like, a, um, even when he's smiling, there's like something 
sinister. Like when he's genuinely smiling, there still comes off as like an energy that's it's unsettling because, yeah, this mm-hmm. could go crazy places at any time. Yeah. We haven't really talked much about Freddy as a character. Like what what is his damage? I know, obviously, like he comes back from the war and he's seen some shit. He's done some shit. And that's turned him into um, a damaged person. But I get the impression, based on what he was talking about with his family, that there was something before that, too. Like yeah. His mother ended up in a mental facility. His, his father died his of father alcoholism, died. essentially. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He drank himself to death. And, uh-huh. and I think he took that with him into the war. I don't think he was just this happy-go-lucky kid yeah. when he went into World War II. And- but World War, I mean, if you know anything about the Pacific Front, uh, yeah. of course, he wasn't a Marine. He was a sol- sailor, but still, holy shit, the, the amount of death and depravity that those guys saw serving in the the Pacific Front was, is some, yeah, legendary. Yeah. So, like, it's like you, he went in probably fucked up and came out fucked up plus shell-shocked. Yeah, I think so. And man, the the levels that he sinks to in this movie are incredible in the early goings. But there's also some acts of like, I don't want to say heroism, but like it the way to, it portrays in the movie, his ghosting that 16 year old girl was a noble thing. Mm-hmm. Like he could have had her. She was all set to leave her entire life and go off with him. And he just knew at some level it was wrong. She's too and, young. Yeah. And she was too young and then went off and did these crazy thing and then came back later when, you know, she was like 24, 25. But of course, it's too late. She's he's been gone for almost 10 years and she's shacked up with another guy and married. I, yeah, I, so there but, are there are good choices and mistakes that are made in that scenario. But that, it's like there's a work. There's a weird, weird energy that runs through a lot of Paul Thomas. I, I didn't notice for the first time until I watched Licorice Pizza, Pizza, which I've talked about a few times mm-hmm. made me uncomfortable and they have a relationship between the Haim uh, lady who I think is playing in her mid-20s, maybe even late 20s in this movie. Uh, she's real life in her 30s and a 15-year-old boy that ends with the happy ending of them getting together in like a boyfriend-girlfriend way at the end. Uh, this movie about Joaquin Phoenix damaged Joaquin Phoenix uh, only uh, girl for him being a 16 year old I think in Boogie Nights Marky Mark starts as an underage kid to get sucked into porn is Paul Thomas Anderson hiding a lot of sexual darkness that is like leaking out in his material because like this seems to be a recurring theme the corruption of youth and like in this movie I think it's seen as a good thing that the guy like you know but like Man, uh, there's a there's a I think a plain reading the licorice pizza that's like, well, what if Lolita, but it's a guy, it's a boy and it's cool um, that I I found very uncomfortable as a as a, you know, I'm saying like if uh, what's what's her name? Is it Alana? Hannah? Hannah Haim? Hannah Haim comes to my fucking house after my 15 year old boy. I'm loading a shotgun, you know, (laughs) like Uh that's fucked up but i don't think that movie knows that um did you get like really? what, what was your kind of take on i, I haven't seen licorice pizza um but in in this movie there are uh, let's say more correct decisions made um it's it's a man who sees himself falling into a bad situation with a young girl and i think i read decides to take himself out of the equation for a while mm-hmm. yeah same and 
and go off to war. Go, go, yeah, just take odd jobs, whatever he's doing during that time. And then by the time he is is free to return and she would have been old enough, he's such a damaged person that he is too ashamed or or something. I think it's shame. Too, too ashamed of his behavior to return to her. And when he finally gets some semblance of a grasp on his life, it's now too late to be with her. Uh, I think they get so married. My my takeaway for the second time watching this is that it was part and parcel because uh, he ran off from the master on that sweet ass old command Norton commando on salt flats, went to her hometown, found that. Uh-huh. I think that was his being like, you know what? Before I met this guy, I made him I made a man decision that was not animal. It was for uh-huh. the it was for someone else's benefit, and I did it without the cause. And I actually can trust myself to make good sober decisions. Um, now that he's sober, yeah. And then he took that into that that strength, that conviction that like I don't yeah. need this. Led him to get away from the extremely high pressure sales tactic that. Uh, the master used at the end of the movie and gets to some, I mean, I think the end of the story is like him finding some kind of equilibrium. I don't know Mm -hmm. if he'll like, he still needs a fucking therapy and probably some lithium, but uh, like, it's a hopeful ending of the movie. He's with a woman of his own age uh, that he is connecting with her like uh, on an, on a human basis. And, and like with a little bit of humor uh, using like auditing techniques that he thinks, I think are, I, I think is a, a joke. Uh, well, and he's taking the the techniques that I deem as valuable, at least in yeah. some regard, and using the those. Honesty. He's not having her walk to the window in the wall over and over, or tell him <laughs> that his eyes are green when they're actually brown. You know, right, right, right. I, I think you're right. There, there is a hopeful note at the end of this, because um, he doesn't seem to be he doesn't seem to be drunk at that point either, right? Like he mm. goes to a bar and he picks up this woman, and those are the behaviors that before would have led him spiraling down. Right. And in this scene, it doesn't feel like a spiral. Yeah. We saw other times where he entered relationships and women and they, they went bad almost immediately. He started like this. It seems like yeah. it's a di- They're telling a different, a different tale. For sure. I, 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 I thought that he, was the core. He goes to, um, what's her name? Doris's house. Doris, yeah. And it, it meets with her mother. She tells him that she's been married for three years and she lives mm-hmm. in Arkansas or something. Um, and he doesn't immediately try to go there and blow that up so that he right. can have her, right? He makes a a decision that's good for her in that yeah, moment, yeah, not yeah, for yeah. him. And a, another uh-huh. one. Um, so, yeah, I think and, like... And I'm not saying he navigated that, that talk with his, her mother perfectly because he's still a deeply man, weird guy. But he did, like, what I would say is the moral thing in every point in a conversation. Do you want me to tell her? You can, no, I, uh, there's no point in that. It would only cause pain. Yeah. If she's happy, then I'm happy for her. And that's good enough for me. Yeah. And this is all happening after he's had his experience with the cause. Right. Right. He's left of us. Like he was ready. Yeah. Um, another question Hmm. when it comes to, uh, mind fucking manipulative, dominating hand jobs, you going with you going with uh, Anna Gunn oh, or uh, or you going with uh, Amy Adams? I, 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 nothing against Anna Gunn, but I'll take the Amy Adams hand job all day long, <laughs> all day long. 
She, I mean, uh, she starts a movement called the Jerk. Uh, I gotta say, mm-hmm. might want to read that newsletter. There, there might be something to that. There might be something to 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 uh, that technique. Uh, <laughs> I, I got a question for you. What the hell does his son think of all this? Because he's one of the craziest characters in this entire movie for me. Because he knows that it's all bullshit. He says as much during this movie, and yet it, and yet he follows him to the ends of the earth, to to London, to another country, to participate and be part of this school. What is his? What is his deal? So the real answer is, I think he's an exact analog to L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Elrond's real hus- husband, son, that had a very conflicted relationship with his dad. And I think that, like, he's caught, but can, he knows this is bullshit. But if he doesn't go along with it, his dad's just a kind of loser, minor science fiction writer. Like, so they're not going to be. your own life, man. Why are you following? With what money? He's cruising the world with his dad with, uh, you know, go tons of. Go get a job. But, but I, yeah, he's clearly like, not happy. Like, I, I, I'm just saying that that's right, what he's doing. Right. I don't think it's he the is, good yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not aspirational. No, no. It's just. And the, the other, like, the hang, like, I At thought the same point, thing about Remy Malik. Your life. You're not living This is a guy who's terrified yeah. of being cut off from the royal family. In fact, that, uh, I thought that whole scene of everybody going and trying to assassinate Freddy's character is just mm-hmm. a bunch of paranoid lunatics that know the only thing they got going on in life is their connection as other paranoid lunatic. And as Freddy's power and connection grow with Lancaster Dodd, there's mm-hmm. Wayne's. Yeah. And like that felt very realistic of like these internal power struggles between the different. And, and my question is like, did, did, did Lancaster Dodd understand when these things were going on that these are people who are just trying to protect their power and influence with him and over him or and 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 he's taking them at good faith or does he know that they're full of shit or does he just not consider himself bound by anything so he can just dismiss their their claims uh, the way he does in this movie? Sure, in the gentlest way possible, with a thank you mm-hmm. for bringing but this to I'm my still going to do the yeah. thing that I wanted to do. I, I think it's the latter. I, I think he he feels like he is the only agent in this equation, um, and he's going to do what he wants to do, even though he doesn't want to disrespect the people who follow him. And, and I think you know, there's a cynical side to that. Like he realizes it's important not to piss these people off too much because. He wants followers, um, yeah. but they're also, I, I think he, in some respects, does value their opinion. I, I think, like, there's a push and pull here between him and his wife when it comes to Freddy. His wife is very much against Freddy, you know, for her own reasons or not, but he gay gives lovers. some credence to that feeling. I, I don't think he dismisses it out of hand. Yeah. He simply is drawn to this man more than yeah. he is willing to acquiesce to his wife's demands. He's a person that has to be brought over to the side. And now that I'm thinking about it more, I think the, there is an arc to this movie. It's kind of buried because there's the second book. There's the shattered saber, the split saber. And there, there's this scene where you're, you're seeing 60 seconds of El, of uh, the Elrond guy reading out of this, this follow-up to Dianetics, essentially. And yeah. you get to where like, it's close up on, on um, Freddie listening and essentially the revelation is that we should laugh more and the pure source energy actually comes from you. Mm-hmm. And from there, like he goes through all the 
the, the, the processes of grief where at first it's denial. It's like, I, the, there's nothing positive, pure coming from me. The anger where he talks to his uh, editor and beats him up because he's expressing doubt. Uh, mm-hmm. The then he goes and steals the guy's motorcycle and goes off. Like I think, I think the Elrond fucked up by saying by and making it up, saying like oh, everything good comes from you. And he thinks, you know what? A few times I've made decisions that were forever for for better. When I and I maybe I am connected to some kind of pure source energy. Maybe good things can come from me. And winds up decultifying himself. Yeah, I think you're right. Let me ask you this. Why do you think he goes to London? Because he's already had these experiences. Is this, I think is he wanted to see to say goodbye. Is this a chance? It's a like, chance to say he, goodbye and a chance to maybe see if they could have a relationship outside of bending the knee. Mm, because Elrond says like you. Yeah. yeah, like this, like Amy Adams says, this is a billionaire commitment or not at all. He's like, you either you either fully commit to the cause or you get the fuck out. Well, what about the next room? You're dead what, to me. Yeah. What about a next lifetime? And then like and then once he knows that it's over and there's no other way to because i think he does love him like a brother at this point and Mm -hmm. owes him a lot but he doesn't love the man enough to live a life that's ruled by the man because he doesn't want a master ultimately yeah yeah which is kind of the whole teaching you know he taught him he effectively kicked him out of the church or Mm -hmm. the organization the movement whatever the cause uh by teaching him too well, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Making him too mentally or then it's a process of like showing his own weaknesses and also building up Freddy to, to a point, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting film, man. Uh, I don't know if it's Extremely. my favorite PTA film, but it's up there. It's definitely up there. I guess there will be blood's gotta be my favorite. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, there will be blood. I think is his masterpiece. I, I'm not sure what PTA sees in this movie that makes it his favorite of his films. Um, yeah, I know. I know he had a looser approach to this movie than most of his other films. He just sort of combined elements that he thought were intriguing or interesting, or characters that he thought were interesting, and didn't so much force the outcome of it into a very like you know neat bow. And I think that shows in the movie. And I think that is reflected by all of the reviews that are like, I don't get this movie Um, or saying it's amazing because of what an enigma it is. Yeah. I I think that's the product of the way that he made this movie for sure. Yeah. No, I think he, I also read in the making of that he had been working on this movie for 12 years and he just kept on adding like, Oh, I got this experience of this great uh, older actor who was in world war two. And he talked about all these different naval hijinks and I'm going to add that to it. And there's this couple of like these brutal psychologically sc- scarring scenes and there will be blood that I couldn't fit into the movie, but I could adapt into this. And I read this interesting thing about the early Scientology and he just kept on like adding and it. Like it's this thing that like, deep it also seemed like it it was born out of his work like every new thing that he did movie wise he was able to bring a little bit of this is kind of like his synthesis of all the experiences that he's had as a creator uh and and putting them in that so it's like i feel like it's 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 deeply personal in that way that it felt like you know he he collected pieces of himself and put this into his movie and 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 then there you there you go can i say i think 
they could not have cast a better son of Philip Seymour Hoffman than Jesse Plemons. I think he actually does look a ton like Philip it's, Seymour Hoffman. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. And I even thought Just the daughter like looks like a very conceivable Amy Adams, Philip Seymour uh-huh. Hoffman. Yeah, absolutely. The one final thing I wanted to talk about briefly, because it's just a thing I found uh, interesting, is the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman's surroundings when he goes to London match his inflated ego. Uh, Boy, and I get the impression that Philip Seymour Hoffman at that point is running from his reputation in America, and he has moved to London. Overstayed his welcome. Yeah, very much so. But when Freddie walks into his office at this school, his office is essentially the size of a gymnasium and it has extraordinary windows behind him. And he's sitting Mm -hmm. at a desk in this largely empty room and it's this massive desk uh, with massive chair behind him and the grandiosity of it all. But the emptiness of that room really left me with like a hollow feeling, a, a, a feeling on the man that, that left me thinking it was more image than it was true belief in his teachings. I had the same feeling that you came in here and that he's got this big campus. Everything was bigger and better, but like it's also like every every level of fraud and entails of going something bigger and bolder, but also mm-hmm. a little bit hollower and a little bit more edifice and a little bit more fake. The image is growing, but the following is not sort of feeling. Yeah. 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 And I don't know how, honestly, it seems like a touch and go thing about Scientology surviving his death because like, you know, at his height, like they had this big like fleet of vessels and they were traveling around the world and then he dies. And by the eighties, like their sea org had retired to land based bases all over the, and Mm -hmm. like, you know, there had to be a struggle for power amongst his top acolytes. I, I, that might be fascinating. Um, I guess I'd I'd much rather them do a a Bible student uh, picture. Mm -hmm. I think I'd be more in for that, but that must be a fascinating time. Cause like, yeah, how did they, how did they successfully, how how do you successfully navigate a cult of personality when the cult, when the personality dies and there's no, like, you know, it's like one thing if you have successors, children and whatnot, that, are you know the billy graham juniors and whatnot but like yeah this case where what what do you do when your kids are kind of kind of hate you uh i guess you get a miscavige so yep anything else yeah Yeah. i um this is interesting because like we started doing bald movies a year or two after this is like in the bald move era Mm-hmm. But like before we're doing movies and I, I think that these 10 year anniversaries will give us a nice chance to go back and fill in, you know, these like because like once we get caught up to like 2013, 2014 or so, it's like we'll probably have covered the majority of the movies we'd want to. But there's a lot yeah. of gems, there's a lot of gems in this three, four year uh, interim period. So uh, we'll probably continue to explore them. But yeah, happy 10th anniversary to this weird film that I feel deeply connected to. It is, I think, fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. It, it's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to get it. But if you're a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, I, I can't imagine wanting to skip this because it's his personal favorite. It's it's fascinating mm-hmm. from that perspective alone. Uh, anyway, yeah, congratulations to making it 10 years in the pop culture imagination. Uh, I really enjoyed revisiting it. We will be back with another prestige television show or movie real soon. And until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.